Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Michael Desch, Professor of International Relations at the University of Notre Dame. Michael, welcome to the show. Great to be here, John. Appreciate the uh, invitation. I'm going to be asking you about the gap between academic social science and U.S. foreign policy, which is the subject of your 2019 book, Cult of the Irrelevant, The Waning Influence of Social Science on National Security. But before we get into the real substance of your work on this, I wonder if you could just give us kind of a more personal testimony as a scholar who's worked on international relations and who's tried to, over the years, to do policy-relevant work and to engage with policymakers in D.C., again, separate from your, your thesis uh, and your scholarly treatment of this, what's that just been like over the years? Well, I think, you know, part of the POV behind the book is I, I think I'm somebody that never could fully decide uh, what I wanted to be when I grow up. And I haven't grown up yet, so <laughs> I haven't had to uh, decide it. But, you know, uh, thinking back uh, biographically, um, when I got out of college, you know, I knew I wanted to do international security. Uh, those were the issues that just really got me out of bed in the morning. Um, but I wasn't really sure um, exactly how I wanted to do it. And the options were, you know, I could uh, go to Washington and be a practitioner, or I could go to graduate school and get a PhD. And uh First thing I did was go to a graduate program at the University of Chicago, uh, the Committee on International Relations, which was a professional MA program, but one that's actually produced a lot of professors, uh, not just me. And so I thought I'd be able to hedge my bets, and I, but I'd also be able to get a feeling of what a real graduate program would be like, not to sound like a shill for maroon land, but uh, the Chicago uh, MA program is different from a lot of other uh, professional MA programs in the sense that you took, you know, basically the same PhD classes that people in the uh, uh, PhD program were taking. You dealt with many of the same faculty um, and so, in a way, it was a good opportunity to get a sense of what it'd be like if I, if I was going to get a PhD. But also, I was hoping that, uh, you know, if I decided not to go that route, that I'd have a useful credential that would get me a job in inside the Beltway. And while I was in that program, and really, um, even the first few years in the PhD program at Chicago... Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, in the summers or the off season uh, working in Washington. So uh, I really um, hedged my bets uh, until the uh, fall of 2004 um, when I uh, applied and was admitted to the PhD program at uh, at Chicago. And at that point, I was, uh, you know, firmly committed to getting a PhD and trying to uh, become primarily an academic. Now, I tell the story. It maybe is partially apocryphal, but it has a basis in truth that uh, getting a PhD in political science saved me from implication in the Iran-Contra scandal, which is ancient history, probably, uh, even to you, John, but a lot of your uh, younger uh, listeners. But in the summer of 84, I was working as an intelligence analyst at the Bureau of Intelligence and Research at the State Department, and I was working in their Latin American division. And uh, I wasn't real smart, um, but it was <laughs> something weird in the office. There was um, a uh, new office that had been set up at State that summer called the Office for Public Diplomacy for Latin America. But the only people in our office that had anything to do with it were the people with the uh, highest clearances. And in fact, their shop was in a skiff right uh, on the floor above us next to the uh, CIA's liaison shop. <laughs> the door was, you know, it was basically a vault. 
Um, so I never got up there, but at the end of the summer, um, some of the folks um, in my shop uh, had uh, told the people in this new office about me. They said he's a good guy and he might be interested in a job in D.C. And, and this new office was looking to staff up. So I get back to Chicago and the executive director of this office calls me up and he says, hey, the folks downstairs say you're good people. Uh, would you uh, like to be considered for a job with us? And uh, I said, uh, well, maybe, but what exactly do you do? I mean, the Office for Public Diplomacy for Latin America, I had no idea what they did. And uh, he said, well, I can't really tell you until we get you cleared and bring you on board. And at that point, to be honest with you, I uh, you know, was uh, already committed to the PhD program at Chicago. So I thought about it, but I called him back and said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And didn't really give it any thought until the summer of 1986 uh, during the Iran-Contra hearings. And I'm watching, you know, on TV, one of the Senate hearings, and they've got the whole rogues gallery. John Poindexter was national security advisor. Ali North, who was a Marine colonel who was seconded uh, to the NSC. Elliot Abrams. Um, and at the end of the table was this guy, um, Ambassador Otto Reich, who was the director of the Office for Public Diplomacy for Latin America. And it transpired over the uh, Rancontra hearings that, in fact, what that super secret office did was they were the conduit for the money uh, from the uh, uh, tow missile sales to the Iranians to the Contras. So had I taken the job I probably would have been every month on the uh, Air Honduras flight from Dulles to Tegucigalpa with a briefcase handcuffed to my wrist with the you know ill-gotten gains. So I say that uh, PhD saved me from uh, Iran Contra, but the true elements of that story—how much of the story I've told you is true—I'll leave to your imagination. Um, but the true elements of the story is is that despite you know uh, deciding to become uh, largely an academic, I never lost the uh, bug uh, for being involved um, in uh, the policy world. And I think the uh, you know not to give you my whole life story, um, but you know when I finished the PhD program at Chicago, and uh, I did a postdoc um, at Harvard University, uh, I worked very closely with Sam Huntington, um, and in fact, then would go back for five years to help him run the Olin Institute. And Sam, for me, and John Mearsheimer, who was my uh, dissertation advisor at Chicago, were sort of two models of the sort of academics that I wanted to be. People, you know, who were doing serious scholarly work, but whose work told us something about the price of tea in China. And in Sam's case, you know, he not only talked the talk, but he walked the walk, uh, taking a couple of years to go down during the Carter administration and work on the NSC for his buddies, Big Brzezinski. Um, so that was sort of my model of the academic career I wanted. And what I discovered was uh, becoming an academic was it was hard to do that. All the incentives uh, were to uh, avoid, uh, you know, Sam's uh, and John's uh, sort of pathway uh, like the plague. And I guess, you know, that's where the book came from in a way. That's interesting, especially that story about your brush with Iran-Contra would have been certainly a different trajectory of your life if you had uh, committed some crimes and got pardoned like the rest of those fellas. Um, well, I would have been so low ranking. You know, they needed somebody to, uh, you know, throw to the wolves. Okay. So you uh, would have got eaten up. But uh, either way, that's a fun story. Well, it's like, you know, that, uh, I don't know if you're watching that series Succession, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, uh, uh, I'm sure some of your listeners probably are. And there's a uh, a scene in which, in, in response to corporate malfeasance, somebody's got to take the hit and go to jail, or at least it looks that way. And 
I would have been <laughs> well in the mix for taking the hit, not for uh, the pardon. So in your book, you frequently describe the central problem as a tension between rigor and relevance. And that manifests in many different ways over time. But can you kind of elaborate on that tension and what it means? Well, basically, we have come to a definition of scholarly relevance that in the name of science and in the name of objectivity uh, pushes us to distance ourselves from engagement uh, in the real world of policymaking. Um, and, and this is not a uh, black and white story. You know, I think the, the arguments uh, in favor uh, of scholarly distance and uh, of, upon occasion, locking yourself up in the ivory tower um, are not ludicrous uh, and not, you know, completely without merit. But, you know, I think that the problem is, is that modern social science, uh, or at least, you know, in political science, has swung too much to the extreme uh, of avoiding uh, political engagement in the name of objectivity and in the name uh, of science. And the science piece of it is very much driven by a distinction uh, between uh, basic research, which is knowledge for its producing knowledge for its own sake, um, and applied research, you know, which is what engineers or business school uh, faculty do, you know, the intervention uh, of the uh, academic world, uh, you know. We, we theorists, we real scientists, don't get dirt underneath our fingernails. The dirt that, you know, uh, is up to people's ears um, inside the beltway in the swamp uh, in our neck of the woods. You write that two factors in the Cold War seemed to open the door for civilian national security expertise namely nuclear weapons and, and the strategy behind that, and then insurgencies in left, less developed countries, which created a demand for area studies. Can you broadly talk about the impact of the Cold War on this gap between scholars and policymakers? Well, the, the theoretical argument in my book is that there are sort of some constant objective factors largely having to do with notions of, you know, the ethos of scholarship and, you know, the interest, uh, the bureaucratic interest of the guild that would lead us to keep the real world at arm's length. And I argue that the variable, the thing that changes is, at least in the field of national security studies, is how pressing uh, the security environment is. So the Cold War is a big deal for me uh, in terms of uh, sort of explaining uh, what many people regard as the golden age uh, of collaboration or one golden age. I actually think there were a series uh, of periods mostly coinciding with war uh, or at least an intensified international security environment that that narrowed the gap or bridged the gap. Um, but it, it's those periods in which constants within the ivory tower get muted for a variety of reasons uh, that I lay out in the book. You talk in one chapter about Thomas Schelling on the one hand and Bernard Brody on the other and their experiences throughout this period. Um, can you talk about those as just uh, tales of what lessons to draw from their their cases? Schelling is a very, very interesting um, case, and it was one that I felt I needed to uh, take on because, in a way, it was a least likely case for my argument. Schelling's a Nobel laureate economist, actually those damn economists, Talk about a racket. It's not, you don't get a Nobel Prize in economics. You get the uh, Bank of uh, Stockholm uh, 
prize in honor of Albert Nobel. Um, don't get me going on that. Uh, but, you know, there, there's no doubt that um, Schelling was a very uh, important uh, academic economist. Um, he was also somebody that was deeply engaged uh, in a wide variety uh, of policy issues. I mean, he really started his career uh, after World War II working for the Marshall Plan. Um, and then uh, on the uh, economic reconstruction of Europe. And then, you know, he was also a major figure, um, you know, uh, after the establishment of the Rand Corporation, a think tank in Santa Monica uh, established by the U.S. Air Force and played a pretty important role um, in thinking about, you know, some of the uh, most important elements of uh, nuclear deterrence. Um, and then finally, uh, he also played, as I lay out in the book, a non-trivial role uh, during the uh, early stages of the Vietnam War in uh, thinking about, you know, how you could translate sort of abstract theories of coercion um, that, uh, you know, he had come up with in terms of thinking about trade policy into the use of military force uh, against North Vietnam uh, to, uh, um, you know, get them to knock off their support of the Viet Cong um, in the South. So um, in one sense, uh, Schelling might falsify my argument and say, you could look at Schelling and you could say, hey, you know, here's somebody who, you know, I don't think he ever got the Bates Medal, um, but he certainly, uh, you know, had lots of other, uh, you know, uh, of the uh, marks of success of an academic economist. Um, and yet he was deeply involved, uh, you know, in a meaningful way uh, in policy for a lot of his career. Wouldn't that, Desh, the evidence that you can have your theoretical cake and eat it too. And the argument I make in the chapter uh, on him is to say no. I mean, that this is uh, a classic example uh, of, uh, you know, uh, a uh, economist's theory assuming the can opener uh, on the desert island where you've got, you know, uh, a can of chicken noodle soup. And in a way, I think the uh, experience of shelling reinforced for the uh, a lot of his colleagues the danger of getting uh, too close to policy. So uh, it's sort of a, uh, a double whammy. Um, Brody, for me, on the other hand, um, you know, is more of a hero. But he, again, uh, in, in a in a way, in a negative sense, because, you know, Brody uh, was never really able to almost the end of his career to have much leverage, um, you know, in the academic world. I mean, he, you know, had a appointment at UCLA, but really, you know, there wasn't a, a lot of interest in what he was doing, uh, you know, from a scholarly standpoint, even though Today, those of us in the academic international security world regard him as one of the uh, most important thinker, certainly on the impact of nuclear weapons on statecraft, but on a lot of other issues as well. So, you know, in a way, it's good you flag those two, John, uh, because I think that they convey what I see as the nuance of my argument. I'm not saying uh, policymaking is all good um, and easy, if if not for the perfidy uh, of the uh, academic guild. Um, it's more complicated, I think, or at least that's how I see it, you know, in my own mind. So Brody uh, worked at Rand. Um, you write a little bit about uh, the case of the Rand Corporation, and, and um, actually, I was a little—I was a little surprised that think tanks in general, especially in their more contemporary conception, weren't a bigger part of your story. But maybe talk about Rand and what's valuable from that story uh, for your thesis, and then also think tanks in general and the evolution of them. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's an excellent question, and I'm mindful, given who pays your rent, 
that I have to be careful about anything I say about Don't be careful. <laughs> be bold. Um, think tanks in their original conception were to be bridges between uh, the academy and the policy world. And I do talk um, in the uh, interwar chapter uh, about the Brookings Institution, which started out, you know, very close to uh, to that ideal. And I'm a big fan of think tanks as transmission belts uh, and translators. Those are the sort of two, um, you know, analogies uh, that I use to think about it. Um, but I'm also something of a jilted lover about uh, think tanks because I, I think very early on uh, they go from you know being the translator in the transmission belt to being something else. The something else, and again, this doesn't apply to every inside the uh, beltway think tank like Cato, um, <laughs> but a lot of them have become uh, holding tanks for out-of-work politicos. Um, and their commitment um, for bridging the gap, uh, I think, in a way, has become as problematic on that side of the broken bridge as uh, the situation is on the university side in the ivory tower. They've become, not all of them by any means, but most of them have become you know, completely creatures uh, inside the beltway, uh, which I don't think is their optimal role, at least in terms of, you know, uh, connecting what I think are, you know, two realms that ought to be better connected. Um, now, Rand, um, I think one could tell a story along very similar lines. The Rand of the 1950s, early 1960s, was in a way like the Brookings of the late 20s, um, early 1930s. Uh, but that changed. Um, now, how much of it changed uh, because the Air Force and Uncle Sam, you know, didn't want ran to be any longer the sort of think tank that it was uh, it, in its initial stage, and how much of it was that there wasn't a follow-on generation uh, of uh, Thomas Schelling's people who, you know, would uh, come to Rand, be associated with Rand on a sustained basis, maybe take a year or two and, you know, actually uh, spend time there. That still happens, um, but not as often as it did uh, in its formative period. And you'd have a hard time if you were to look at the, uh, you know, the leading lights in academic uh, international relations or even international security today and, and ask how many of them have an ongoing relationship with a think tank like RAND. Uh, very few of them. Now that we're on the topic of think tanks, uh, friends and colleagues of mine, Justin Logan and Benjamin Friedman, published a paper several years ago that tried to address the scholarship policy gap, more specifically with respect to the think tank world. And they articulated the problem somewhat differently. And I want to see what, you, what your reaction is. Um, they write, quote, what leaders most often want from outside experts is help with marketing the imprimatur of scholarly credibility, affirmation in the, in the guise of consultations. Um, so they're arguing that what policymakers really are looking for from political science is validation of their preset policy preferences, which they adopt and, and hold as a result of politics and not some serious inquiry into the problem itself. Um, Justin and, and Ben even cite a, a senator who anonymously says, Quote, you can find a think tank to buttress any view or position, and then you can give it the aura of legitimacy and credibility by referring to their report. Um, how does this differ from your argument? Well, it's another explanation. 
Um, and I don't think it's incompatible with with my argument. Um, you know, but I, I think I and I you know remember uh, reading the piece uh, when it uh, first came out. Um, you know, their their focus is on the demand side, and I think that there there is, and this isn't a recent thing. I mean, there was. Uh, a famous social scientist at Harvard, Alexander Layton, who during the Second World War worked um, for, uh, uh, I believe it was the OSS, uh, the Research and Analysis Division. And he came away, uh, this quote a lot of people have used uh, about, uh, you know, saying that he thought policymakers used uh, social science the way a uh, drunk used a lamppost, not for illumination, but for support. So that's always been part of it. But I think that that's not a, a, the whole. Um, and I think, you know, if, if you read the book, you've read the book, but I mean, the uh, listeners, if they read the book, they'll say, there's been lots of issues and periods of time in which policymakers have sought and listened uh, to work uh, coming from uh, people in think tanks or, God help us, even uh, in academia. And you'd referred before, and I sort of uh, elided the, uh, this part of your question, but I'll, I'll engage it right now, nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons uh, were brand new. And uh, despite Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there had never been, and thank God never has been, a nuclear war. So thinking about nuclear weapons in the context uh, of two superpowers with large numbers of nuclear weapons, um, you know, is entirely a theoretical undertaking. You know, and that's why uh, Brody's uh, seminal ruminations about that in 1946 in The Absolute Weapon uh, were so important. But also that that fact was a pretty powerful lever um, for civilian defense intellectuals uh, to uh, get involved in thinking, you know, not only at the high theory level, but also at the operational level uh, about when and how we might use nuclear weapons. And it was, I think, Lane Enthaven, who was um, a RAND guy uh, who later uh, would go under McNamara uh, into the Pentagon in the new uh, Office of uh, Program Analysis or Systems Analysis. It's now Program Analysis and assessment. And, you know, when he'd be in meetings with uh, senior Air Force officers and start pushing them uh, on operational issues involving nuclear weapons, you know, he'd get the uh, uh, pushback, you know, from the uniform folks saying, you know, okay, professor, what do you know about this? And his response, which I think was unanswerable was, well, General, I've fought as many nuclear wars as you have. Um, and so, you know, I mean, that's uh, one issue where, uh, you know, most policymakers realize that they needed a broader uh, swath of input. Um, area studies, especially uh, during the Second World War and the Cold War, you know, was another area uh, where uh, the government needed a lot of outside expertise, and it was expertise that was only resident or largely resident um, in uh, in academia. And I think you could, you know, I talk about this a lot in the book, and I think if you thought about it, there'd be, you know, lots of uh, uh, issues, uh, you know, beyond the ones that I mention in the book, where, uh, you know, the the uh, the the uh, bureaucracy um, actually has need of expertise that they don't have, and they reach out for it. Now, the issue here is, you know, the policymaking uh, bureaucracy is, uh, you know, quite complex and quite hierarchical. And it may be 
indeed be the case that, you know, at the top of the food chain, um, you know, that uh, policymakers, uh, the most senior policymakers, you know, are not uh, reading um, the latest issue of international security to try to figure out, you know, what we do in Ukraine. Um, but at lower levels in the intelligence community or an OSD policy, there are a lot of people, you know, uh, who are reading those things and reaching out to people that they think can be helpful for problems that they're engaging. The question is, when they reach out, uh, you know, is somebody answering the email? And my argument in the book is not so much or not as much as it could be. So, uh, as we've said, one of these, one of the problems that you identify is kind of um, specialization and complexification of scholarly work that doesn't end up being relevant to policymakers. Um, and toolification. And toolification, okay. Right. Meaning that we have uh, increasingly come to define scholarly rigor based on a, a series of tools. And the problem is the tools always keep changing. Um, but if you use these tools, your work is rigorous. If you don't use these tools, if you learn languages, if you do field research, if you do archival research, you're less rigorous than if you do game theory, if you do um, field experiments or natural experiments, if you do, uh, you know, sophisticated uh, statistical analysis, um, you're more, more rigorous. It was interesting to read this book from my perspective, because, you know, like we said, at a think tank, uh, I actually viewed a large part of my role when I was director of foreign policy studies at Cato to try to bring good scholarship that was policy relevant, but maybe not in the right form or language and try to sort of transmit that to the policy world. And it did seem anecdotally in my own, my own experience that there were plenty of really robust findings from uh, the literature that policymakers just didn't want anything to do with. So like sanctions, a really good example. Sanctions have a terrible track record. Literature is very skeptical of their value, but they're politically convenient. So policymakers just aren't interested in the facts that demonstrate that they're not effective. Credibility, you know, people are always wondering about our credibility with foreign uh, powers, and we go to great lengths, sometimes go to war in order to protect that credibility. And the literature seems to suggest that's not necessary. There's also things about, you know, civil war and nation building and counterinsurgency that just again and again, policymakers aren't paying attention to. And it's not because it's, um, it's uh, impenetrable jargon. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of a schmuck. I'm just a guy with a master's. I don't have a PhD. I can understand this stuff. It's just that it's not valuable to them because it's not in their interest. Well, and again, you know, it sounds like you're channeling your colleagues uh, or former colleague in, uh, uh, in Ben's case. And, and I think that in some respect is, uh, is not wrong. There is a uh, demand side problem. Uh, but I also think that there is a supply side problem as well. I think uh, a, a lot of work that's being done is not accessible. And let's take a counterexample, the democratic peace theory, which is you know one of the uh, findings from uh, contemporary international relations that uh, many people think uh, is not only the most uh, robust in terms of its validation by the preferred tools uh, of uh, you know modern social science, but one that uh, policymakers uh, seem to uh, embrace. Um, and you know there, and I do talk about this in the book. Um, you know the 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 democratic piece, whatever you think about it. I guess I'm sort of a a little bit of a skeptic. Um, but, you know, one of the, the things that we saw, uh, particularly after 9-11 and in the run-up to the uh, war in Iraq, uh, was sort of the weaponization of the argument about the, uh, the democratic peace, um, that the problem, not only in Iraq, but in a lot of the 
Islamic world was there wasn't enough democracy. If there were democracy, a lot of problems that we were facing there would go away. Um, and, you know, the Iraq war, uh, you know, had lots of rationales, but one of them that uh, Paul Wolfowitz is one of the architects of the uh, 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 Iraq war uh, and President George W. Bush um, laid out was the promotion of uh, democracy um, and, uh, you know, the need to, uh, you know, help history along in Iraq by uh, showing Saddam Hussein the door. Now, one of the great <laughs> ironies was uh, in the run-up to the war, uh, the most many of the leading scholars of the democratic peace were whores to combat. Uh, you know, why that was the case, who knows? Uh, and then later, you know, they, they would say uh, that, look, this isn't uh, a reasonable implication of our findings. And I didn't think it was either, but, you know, uh, writing a piece two years uh, after uh, the invasion of Iraq, when everything has already, you know, uh, basically gone to rack and ruin, uh, and pointing that out, geez, that would have been nice to know uh, as part of the debate in uh, uh, 2002 uh, in the run-up to it. Um, and so, you know, there it seems to me is a good example of the uh, the problem of the supply side. And, you know, I think there are a, a lot of other, uh, you know, uh, similar sorts of examples. So I agree with you, John and Ben, that there's a demand side problem. And I think there's plenty of evidence in the book that that demand side problem, like the supply side problem, is different in a high threat environment. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I'm focused on uh, on my guild, on what I, I don't know that I can fix it, but I mean, that's what I see, that's what I know. Um, and uh, uh, you guys uh, can write the book uh, about the, uh, and you got to work in the Alexander Layton thing about the the drunk and the streetlight <laughs> in the title. How can organizational self-interest and intellectual culture reinforce the inclination for scholars to embrace methods and models for their own sake, rather than because they can help us answer substantively important questions? You were, I think, unduly modest. Uh, in characterizing your ability to, uh, you know, look at what we produce and figure out, you know, what what would make sense. But what you, a civilian, in the non-academic sense, sort of don't understand is uh, what the dynamics are within the academy in terms of uh, a scholar's career. Um, and uh, so all of us want tenure. Um, and the process of getting tenure is largely satisfying a very narrow audience. And that narrow audience is, in my case, I'm in a political science department. So it's my political science colleagues, the vast majority of whom do not do international relations. They're American politics, comparative politics, political theory, constitutional studies. Um, you know, so <laughs> they're neither familiar nor particularly care much about uh, what I do. Um, when I'm, you know, up for tenure or up for promotion, um, who are my colleagues going to ask? whether Mike Desch deserves this promotion. They aren't going to come um, and ask policymakers, uh, you know, or even people at public policy schools, uh, you know, is Mike Desch a good political scientist? They're going to ask other political scientists. Um, and the, the, the process of my career is decided uh, through a chain uh, that's internal to the university system that until you get to the, you know, the president or the board of trustees is all inward looking. 
Now, in political science, to go back to that, um, American politics people, comparative political theory people, most of the substance of what I do is alien to them and, and maybe not even of much interest. So in political science, and I think this is true in a lot of social sciences, the common denominator is methods. Um, that, uh, you know, I can't tell you whether Mike Desch knows anything about uh, the Russian military, but I can tell you whether he, he knows research design or he knows statistical analysis. Um, and that has had the, uh, the effect uh, of homogenizing uh, how we think about each other. Um, and that, you say, how could methods, uh, you know, crab or constrict the way we think about the enterprise? That's, that's something you only see if you're, you know, on the uh, promotion committee or, you know, part of the, uh, the process. Um, and so, you know, we, we exist. There's a great Herman Hesse uh, novel, Magister Ludi, or The Glass Bead Game, you know, about this sort of, uh, you know, uh, dystopian world in which this, uh, you know, sort of intellectual monastic order, uh, you know, which very much uh, prizes intellectual uh, complexity and the aesthetics of this thing they call the glass bead game that, you know, becomes all consuming for them. And, you know, everything else is, you know, sort of completely uh, outside of their ken. Academia is an ivory tower. <laughs> and, you know, in a sense, when you're in an ivory tower, you're isolated. Um, and uh, it becomes an inside baseball game, I guess. In the same way that maybe, you know, from um, the demand side and, you know, from the think tank world, you know, maybe you find the uh, flip side of that, that, you know, people don't really care, you know, what we're doing out here in land-grant university land in flyover territory you know, doesn't have much to do with, you know, the sort of dynamics of how they're going to position themselves to, uh, you know, get their next job. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it, it when you think about it like that, it's actually very easy to understand how organizational dynamics could, you know, produce a monoculture, not unknown in a lot of other walks of life. You've got a quote in here, and I just want to ask you to uh, talk about it a little bit. Quote, the most common argument against scholarly engagement with policymaking is that it presents insuperable moral and ethical problems to the integrity of the scientific process and also makes the academy complicit in the immoral policies that governments often undertake. How do you get around or, or mitigate this problem? Yeah, well, um, I think... It, it is a uh, a difficult uh, problem, but it, you know it's it's a problem in a lot of walks of life, not just in uh, academia. That you know uh, the there's always a gap between you know sort of our abstract uh, moral principles and what's possible um, in reality. Um, and that invariably involves some compromise. Now, I think, you know, again, it's possible for us, particularly in the modern university, you know, where uh, lots of people are happy to live in the ivory tower, you know, to take an extreme principled position on this, uh, you know, simply because most of the incentives we face you know, don't put us in that morally uh, difficult uh, gray zone. But the point I was trying to make in flagging that was to say there's a another moral issue that's the flip side of that. And that's, you know, uh, we are creatures of the same society as, you know, the rest of Americans. And if, especially if you're at 
a state university, but even if you're at a private university, you're the recipient of a lot of largesse uh, from the rest of that society. And it seems to me that the rest of that society uh, is, um, you know, not uh, unreasonable in asking for us to be able to answer um, how what we do we do uh, addresses some of the most pressing issues uh, that they face, um, and that's where I think the you know extreme don't get your hands dirty position ignores an alternative and I think equally important moral argument about our role as citizens and our roles as beneficiaries uh, of a lot of public large, uh, largesse. But I, I don't think we think about it. Or we do think about it, you know, when uh, we get in trouble. So I w- I've been at a couple of state universities and, you know, uh, invariably boards of regents who are not academics will ask this question. Uh, and put the screws to us, and we resent that. Um, and now, even for private universities, this whole discussion about taxing endowments, I think, is inextricably uh, linked to, uh, well, I mean, part of it, <laughs> I think, is politics, which is a lot of Republicans think, you know, we're all a bunch of uh, lefties, and they're probably not wrong about that. So this is a way to screw us. But the principled argument that they make, whether they believe it or not, um, is a fair one, which is you got a lot of money um, and what are you doing with it? Um, and how does that, uh, you know, how, how are you stewarding that in the interest of the public in a state institution or your alumni in the uh you know, in a private institution like ours, you know, who invariably have a broader vision uh, for the role of the university in society. That's the irony. You know, we were talking before, um, you know, at the lower levels of the food chain and academia, it's all inside the guild. But, you know, you get to provosts, university presidents, boards of trustees, these are the people, uh, you know, who uh, are very um, sympathetic to the argument that I'm trying to make. They see the tensions and they also feel the need uh, and the commitment to making the universities not only producers of basic knowledge, but also people uh, who can apply that knowledge to really important problems. A few minutes ago, you talked about the methods-driven approach and how uh, problematic that can be. Um, and throughout the book, you land on a lesson over and over again that you know scholars should look at problem-driven approaches as opposed to methods-driven as, as one way to kind of deal with this gap. Talk about that and any other pointers or, or final thoughts for how scholars of international relations should engage the policy world? Well, I think I would say two things, John. Um, First of all, I'm here to sell my book, not other people's books. But there was a book um, by uh, a Princeton professor, Donald Stokes, who also spent a lot of time at uh, Brookings, entitled Pasteur's Quadrant. And the uh, punchline of his book was that this distinction between basic research and applied research was completely artificial. And in fact, when you started looking at research, there was a reciprocal relationship uh, between these things. And so, you know, one of the core rationales for being scientists, basic scientists, in fact, uh, isn't how uh, the world works. So if you want to be a good scholar, it seems to me that uh, getting your fingernails dirty uh, with the real world of policy is not a bad thing. I mean, there are some moral issues, but, uh, you know, they're moral issues with, uh, you know, taking the, uh, the intellectual uh, high road as well. But in terms of the production of real good knowledge, uh, if Stokes is right, and I believe he is, uh, that 
um, you've got to be engaged um, in real world politics or real world uh, empirical things in a in a uh, a deep way. Um, and so that that'd be one thing. So Pasteur's quadrant. After people buy my book, they should buy that, uh, but only after. Um, but the second thing is problem-driven research. Um, you know, I think is uh, is very important uh, because ultimately, at the uh, end of the day, um, being able to say something about the important issues of the world uh, is going to be, uh, you know, how people are going to be uh, are going to be judged. They'll be judged um, externally. Uh, about that, and I think part of the crisis of expertise um, and the you know uh, low standing of my guild in the public uh, eye is a function of they're not sure exactly what we tenured radicals do, uh, but they're pretty sure doesn't have uh, anything to uh, say about them. But secondly, I also think, and this goes back to Schelling or Sam Huntington or Bob Putnam. The people who are really um, the thought leaders, even in academia, are people who are able to, uh, in a way, identify the big problems that uh, you know a broader range of people uh, really care about. Um, and so I think we sort of set our sights uh, too low, you know, in just sort of, you know making an incremental uh, contribution to knowledge, which I don't think is bad. Um, but, you know, we also ought to think big. Not probably most of us who think big are never, we'll take that big swing, but we're not going to hit the wall over the uh, center field wall, or if we do, maybe once in our career. But I think we should be regularly taking a couple of cuts like that. Maybe not every time at bat, but at least once in our career. You can learn to like striking out. You just need practice. Michael Desch, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, John.